3: Welcome to the Tuesday Q&A, everyone. We have Forrest and Tom. Uh, Milo apparently isn't joining us today, so he must have something else going on. So, Tom, I guess we can dive right into questions unless we want to... uh... Actually, we should do an update with Forrest since you just had something happen there.
1: We'll do a a quick update. Before we get started, I just want to say uh, I want to thank everybody for your questions. They keep us going. If you like the show, let us know click on the like and if you haven't subscribed please subscribe that helps the algorithm and you get to know when all the new shows come out also if you want to support the show you can do so we've got a link to Patreon in the description and I'm going to hand it off to Forrest
2: well 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 Um, I probably wouldn't have seen these today if it hadn't been and they probably wouldn't have been there tomorrow if it hadn't been for the fact that uh, a gate got left open and the horses were all out in the front pastures and i happened to be walking down um my friends came over to help me round the horses up and put them back into the other pasture and um i just happened to be walking down towards the barn and of course we haven't had rain since whenever and uh, it's starting to look like the sahara desert around here and i've got lots of loose dirt sand and um so it's really easy to make tracks in. And I just happened to look down and just there and lo and behold, and I, you guys got them right there in front of you, there was a trackway. And uh, one nice, really good footprint right there in the, the dirt. And, <clears throat> and then there was another one kind of crisscrossing the other way. Those went straight due north and south. And then at, I saw another larger print. Uh, going across the top that was, one was in the dirt, and then the next, they must have stepped off into the grass, because I didn't see any other uh, prints other than that, and anyway, I took the picture of the first, uh, a picture of the first footprint that I saw, and then went up and took a picture of the the big footprint, well, about that time, (laughs) Travis is, uh, I was actually yelling at Sherry to try to get her to come over there, and, and to look at them, and then Travis was yelling at the horses, and and lo and behold, what comes through, because I was stepping back so I could get, I wanted to get a, a, a shot so that chuck could see the trackway, and they were evidently heading from south to north uh, across the, the property, and um, it was going right into the yard of the, the old house, and um, um, it would have took them right past the cat house, which seems to be one of their favorite things to go past, I guess, and go take a look at the kitty cats in there but anyway um i was backing up so i could get a, a a bird you know a view so that i could get the trackway in there to send it to you and what happens about that time well here come the horses all running right through there so they i mean literally destroyed the trackway just that quick and of course the um uh i was i was lucky that uh, that first print i got a good picture of and uh even though i did uh have one baby that had one that had gone through there and put its foot kind of right at the edge of uh the one print that you can still see it it's it's really good i think i, I, and, have, to, and, I
3: have oh <laughs> i'm sorry i just well,
2: i was going yeah. to say the same thing that, that you're probably going to say about the fact that that one thing that i've noticed and you've noticed because you've been taking casts of these things forever and ever and ever that they the the pressure seems to be on the outside of the foot
3: right i was going to ask you two things um so you think there were two or three individuals that probably walked through there correct
2: at least yes uh-huh
3: and and i i know it, was, it all happened so quick but do you have an estimate we think the size might have been on one or one or more of the tracks
2: uh i bet that one big one up there looked like it was about 18 inches
3: well uh, that's a good least. sized one
2: uh, yeah, and uh, the other one, uh, well, you can kind of see the little hook prints out there. I can actually, um, I can probably go back out there later and uh, with the tape measure and probably get you a good idea. But I bet that I was at least uh, 13, 14 inches because it was bigger than my foot.
3: Okay. Yeah, they're the shape, especially around the toes, and they're pretty good toes, pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, these are very reminiscent of... You know, when you see tracks from Bluff Creek in the late 50s and through the 60s, these are very similar to those. So, yeah, very interesting. I mean, it just it really supports everything you've been telling us that's going on there.
2: Well, and, and you know, I guess I just had never really paid that much attention looking for tracks before you guys told me to start looking for them. And um, now I'm looking every time I walk out there, you know, for tracks and it's so dusty around here right now it it's uh you know it's real easy to, to make tracks and uh but like you know when I had all the horses come through there it was just that quick all oh, they were gone and I was like oh, oh god doesn't it sound familiar Tommy waited Tom? about a split second
1: more <laughs> Does
3: this sound familiar Tom you know go back and look at the ground
1: <laughs> <laughs> It does absolutely and I was thinking the same thing And I'm, you know, I'm betting over time for us that you're going to be getting more and more of these, you know, once you, once you know what to look for, the, uh, the tracks are hiding in plain sight and there they are. You're going to see them. And I suspect, I don't know. What do you think? will we'll probably. Oh, I think so. Get time goes on. Well,
2: uh, I think it's kind of like that old adage, you know, you can't see the forest with for the
3: trees sometimes. <laughs> so. Sometimes that's true. Well, that's very interesting developments. Uh, Tom, let's go ahead and dive into the questions.
1: Okay. The first one is from Alex. Alex was very curious, and he actually came to a really good conclusion at the end. But there's, uh, I think this started a couple of weeks ago when I first saw it, a so-called Bigfoot skull with a sagittal crest found in a like a mud puddle. Um, and towards the end, it turned out it was, <clears throat> according to Alex, it, it was his conclusion that it was a publicity stunt and probably uh, bones clones put to use.
3: Yeah, exactly. Forrest,
1: right. you've seen this, right? I
2: saw it, too.
3: And, and, okay. and you know he's he's correct i think what was, was your thoughts oh go ahead, go ahead
2: well are you asking my thoughts i well actually chuck sent it to me and asked me uh, uh what i thought and i said uh that i looked at it immediately and i said it's a gorilla that was my first my, I, I didn't even hesitate i told him it's a gorilla he's like really i said yeah for one i said if it was a Bigfoot, you've got way too much na- nasal prognathism there showing uh it's it's which is the muzzle like, and gorillas and chimpanzees present that, and uh, and the bigfoot uh, bigfoots don't. They always you always hear they have flat faces, so they're not going to have that uh, type of prognathism sticking out there. And that was the first thing that I said. Nope, that's a that's a gorilla skull.
3: Yeah, I said the same thing when I saw it on Facebook. I I, I commented to. Uh, somebody who was asking a question. I said "Well, it's it's a gorilla skull and I know it is because and whoever said that Tom about bones clones There's a company called bones clones and they make copies of fossils and, and bones and things that you can purchase and I have that exact skull gorilla skull in my collection, <laughs> you know, so I recognized it right away.
1: I Got I gotta I gotta hand it to Alex. So kudos Alex you first sent it to us as a question, and then you answered your own question, and you came to an excellent conclusion. So He did. Yeah. And when I see stuff like that, why is it that we immediately, the hoax meter pegs out? <laughs>
3: well, and then there's the reverse. Right the there bat. are all kinds of people on Facebook that are hailing it as, you know, the, uh, the big discovery and all this stuff without ever questioning that maybe it's not what the person is claiming it is.
0: Right. Well, yeah, I, I, and that's it, too bad. I,
1: you've said this a thousand times. I was just going to say the skeptics. We appreciate not not the debunkers or the scoffers, but the true skeptics who want to see more evidence. Absolutely. Go go ahead, Forrest.
2: Well, I was just going to say that I felt fail, I failed to understand why that we even have to have people hoaxing out there what is the motivation behind that and and what have they got really to gain i mean <clears throat> the notoriety is going to be short-lived and then when people find out the the truth of the situation i mean anybody that has any any type of uh, knowledge about primates could have looked at at that and made the come to the same conclusion as you and i did and and i mean e- your five minutes of fame is over with and now you've made a fool out of yourself so uh and all it does is make the whole subject matter uh, something uh, a matter of ridicule. Then, so and, I don't I don't understand the motivation.
3: And the bad part is there are several people. You know, periodically this happens where somebody will come out and you know we talk about Rick Dyer and uh, there's, oh, a f- there's a few others. You know, buscardi and some of these other people that are are just blatant hoaxers. And and they yep. continue to stay in the subject. And Dyer, I don't think does, but. People, you know, uh, some of these other folks do, and and it's just like it's it's like they're playing duck. You know, the water just rolls off them, and they just keep going.
2: Well, they threatened to run dire out of Texas on them. Uh, you know, <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, he he picked the wrong state to try to do that in.
2: Yes, he did.
3: Okay, Tom, let's move on.
1: All right. So Ron from Dallas would like to know. My question concerns Sasquatch growls of the four different types, are the vocalizations identical, similar, or different between them?
3: We don't really know. There's not enough information out there to make that kind of uh, decision or commentary about it. I don't know. What would you think, Forrest?
2: No, I totally agree. That's just what I was going to say. I mean, um, there's just absolutely no way of, you know, knowing.
3: Yeah, we barely have enough vocals recorded to, uh, you know, pin it on the Sasquatch, let alone differentiate between, you know, one subgroup and another.
2: Now, I would imagine that there's a lot of similarities, but uh, to, to be able to distinguish between one group versus another, I just don't know how you could do it.
3: I think the only way you'd be able to do it is if you were able to have a, some kind of a long-term study with you know, two two types that weren't that far apart geographically and you were able to, you know, record the vocalizations. But that's a pretty tall order.
2: Yeah, you got to do that because I'm not. <laughs>
3: no.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and I, I think there's another problem, and that is the creatures themselves, you know, like if you're talking about an elk, uh, deer, moose, bear, anything like that, they're pretty much, they've got their limited repertoire of vocals sasquatch they mimic sounds they mimic people they mimic other animals and birds and all kinds of stuff so will don't you think that would throw that much more complexity into the question of the different types of vocalizations
3: it would i think we touched a little bit on that didn't we forrest when we talked to fred in alaska yesterday which is by the way folks that's going to be uh, the upcoming Saturday show episode 181, we had Fred in Alaska back on with some new information and, and some different information things that we asked him. Uh, but anyway, he he did touch a little bit on some of those vocals and um, uh, yeah, you're right. I think that uh, definitely would muddy the waters a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we did talk about that, uh, and the thing that I always always say, you know. Primates, well, they have a larger repertoire, yes, of uh, vocalizations than uh, any other mammal that I know of. And uh, and primates, if, if primates had a human brain, they all of them uh, would be sitting down with us at a round table right now and having a discussion about how they felt and how they think and why they do this and why they do that. Uh, but we're not having that discussion because they don't have the neural uh, uh Capacity to to do that. Neither do they have a hyoid bone, which uh helps with. Uh, they do have uh, a larynx and vocal cords, just like us, but they lack the 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 brain to do it and the the neur- the neural connections in there.
1: Yeah, but exactly.
2: that would be nice if they had because we could just sit down and talk to Bigfoot and and uh, he could tell us everything he thinks. <laughs>
3: yeah, like well, you look tasty.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel
3: like I like <laughs> <laughs> kind of reminds me of oh my. What was it what was it the outer limits I think or, or twilight zone back in the 60s there was a, there was a show where aliens came and they brought a, a book that they couldn't read and the title was to serve man and they then they found at the end it was a cookbook. I
2: remember that. Oh gosh! Oh, well, they have to be old enough to remember that. Oh, yeah, that's I true. Think you can find, yeah, you can do. You can find some of the Twilight Zone shows out on some of these uh, channels now.
3: That would be kind of unnerving, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> alien, yeah. alien race comes. And they, they think you think that they're the big saviors of humankind, and you find out they're they're here to eat us.
1: <laughs> you know, that's not too far from. What Stephen Hawking said not too long before he died, he was talking about making alien contact. He, he drew the analogy between cultures hugely separated by distances and mm-hmm. the the negative impact it had. And one example was Christopher Columbus discovering the new world. Mm-hmm. And then the conquistadors come over and, you know, was it good? Well, you know, it depends.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know the whole history of the world is you know, the conqueror and the conquered. So uh, I, you know, I just can't imagine. It it goes back to the old adage, you know, you better be careful what you wish for.
3: That's very
1: true. All you, right, might
2: all right. you might not like it.
1: <laughs> right. Well, Ron wishes to have a question answered. And He says, "My question is, does a group of Sasquatch navigate in north south?" or east-west directions in general, are they navigating randomly? Do you see any trends developing on their movement strategies?
3: Well, now what was the first part of that, again, about north-south and all that? I I can
1: miss that. Okay. So he says, my question is, does a group of Sasquatch navigate in north-south or in east-west directions in general? Or or is it a random... thing that they do when they when they navigate it's my question would be do they navigate
3: it's unique to each range um there isn't any set pattern it just depends on the topography of their of their range and they'll use terrain features to navigate by does that make sense
1: yeah makes
2: a lot of sense yeah because what they're going to do in one area they may not do in another and they're going to be following the uh uh the the prey animals and if you got deer and elk moving in uh traditionally in a a one direction then that's what they're going to be following that because that's that's the food source so they're going to be uh you know following that and when it uh, they move then they're going to move so and
3: what i can give you as an example is where i grew up um west of mount rainier they were the creatures in that particular area they were following Uh, the puyallup and carbon rivers down and back up to the mountain about every six months is what their movements were and that was just you know my my teenage observation and john green came back and later told my family that i was i was exactly correct because he was able to piece together reports from the area and that's what it showed
1: well what it really boils down to well go ahead for us
2: no, I was just going to say seasonal vegetation, too, like your uh, berries and such as that. I mean, uh, you know, you hear about seeing them in uh, berry fields all the time, and uh, they're going to follow that, too. And oh, sure. uh, if berries will show up at a certain time of the year, well, that's where they're going to be. They're going to be in there feeding on it just like the bears and everything else are, too. Oh, and yeah. it's just like right here. I actually had started kind of watching that it seemed like they start coming in here during the fall of the year and that's when your deer population is really kind of the heaviest in this area and unfortunately or fortunately fortunately for the deer and maybe it's unfortunate for me i don't hunt the deer on my place and i don't allow anybody to hunt them so i have a lot of deer that hang out here during the uh, hunting season which is starts november one here in texas so uh I had noticed that uh, these things seemed to start coming in here about that time. So I would imagine what's bringing them in, I'm thinking, is probably all these whitetails up here. Because I literally live in what's considered the whitetail capital of Texas.
3: Keep an eye on it this November, because with these tracks you found today of the creatures, um, that circumstances could change.
2: Well, and, and the other thing that's driving them in, too, is water. Yes. I've got, you know, water tanks right up here by the house, and, and I moved them up here for convenience for me so that I wouldn't have to go so far to, uh, put, the, the, to put the water in them. But <clears throat> I'm sure they're coming up here because deer are coming up here, too. Right, Every absolutely. I mean, everything is because we have no water. The water tanks have dried up. The stock ponds have dried up. I mean, people that have gone and spent thousands of dollars stocking it, their stock ponds with bass and catfish, they have no water in there. They've all died out. Wow. I mean, it's
1: it's like the Sahara Desert here, guys. All right, Tom. It's let's bad. Move on. Let's move on. Well, yeah, and you know, one thing I just want to comment <clears throat> real quick is it's not just are they going north, south, east, west, or, you know, they're going for the food sources. Why would anything navigate? It's, it's well, they're doing it for food, so it depends is the food north is it south east or west i think that's the real answer
3: which which you have to look at the big the big question there is why do they move in the first place from one part of their range to another and it's basically so they don't number one they don't deplete a food source in a particular area and secondly once once the game animals get wise to their presence then they're going to flee the area so those are the reasons they move throughout their ranges
1: So it boils down to food, food, food. Yeah, it's all about food. I'm with them on that. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Ron in Dallas, he wants to know, he says, I'm a weekly listener, and for the life of me, I cannot understand why I haven't asked this specific question. So thank you, Ron. Keep them coming. At the start of each weekly show, I hear comments or overdubs made by previous witnesses you've had on the show I find it very insightful I also hear segments of screams in the opening segment can you elaborate more detail or background on the nature of the screams oh. nobody's talking about I like those screams
3: yeah I I can't remember offhand sometimes you know I have I have stuff in my files and when we we discuss things like oh we need a new uh intro for the show so i'll go rummaging through stuff i've sat, had in there for many years and sometimes i don't even remember where i got the stuff to be honest with you uh, especially if it's something i haven't looked at for a long time and uh, because there's so much going on all time and tom you know this very well um, how fast-paced what we do is so you know i would have to go back and really kind of dig through that stuff to get an answer on some of those screams and, and that information
1: and it it really underscores another thing which is important that i'm not doing as well as i could and that is documenting who what where dates and times what what is this why is it recorded it boils down it, to a you lot think of in the work. moment
3: it's a lot of work
1: it is it's an incredible amount of work
3: i, I don't think people uh, realize how long it takes to actually put this show together when we were doing the three-hour show just now I know you spent probably five hours at least working on it. And this is aside from the recording. But with editing and doing everything else, I, I would spend about eight hours on, on each show yeah. putting it together. But we love
1: it. It's yeah, a we passion. Do. We do. We're not complaining. We really enjoy I it. I
3: mean, there it's not perfect. We're still trying to work a lot of the bugs out. Uh, I know from the early shows there were audio problems because i'm not a tech guy and i just didn't know or didn't understand how to do a lot of that i fortunately have friends you know would give a lot of good advice so it was a process and it's still a process folks
1: it is it is all right um so this person wants to know from listening to your comments about bigfoot behavior my impression of the pg film Incident has changed since Bigfoot never show themselves to humans unless they want to It seems likely Patty appeared more or less on purpose
3: on purpose Is it yes.
1: possible that yes, is it possible that Pat Patterson Giblin actually? Came very close to a Bigfoot maybe hiding, hiding a juvenile Before they rounded the corner and saw Patty and this was why Patty was out and drawing attention to her you know to kind of a misdirection is sounds like what he's asking she wasn't agitated by the two humans it looks less like a chance encounter more like an intentional or done on purpose
3: well Will, what are your thoughts i think here's who what i saw think. who first here's what i think well the the creature would have heard them coming you know yeah. in in late october that was october 20th in that area i can tell you from being there many many year times in each year uh numerous years it gets it, by august what water is in the area dries uh, down considerably there's not a whole lot of water and um bluff creek seven miles up from the mouth is where the film site is and it's by that time of year it's pretty low there's not much water up there so it's you can hear very well your surrounding area so the creature would not have been um y- you know the noise of the horses would not have been obscured by water noise because there's hardly any water up that far um at that time of year so it would have heard them coming for quite some distance actually and if it had a young one now think about what you know female animals typically do with young they defend them vigorously uh you certainly don't want to be near a bear with its cubs because that's a recipe for your disaster. And the Sasquatch is probably no different. So I don't think there was a young one that close. Uh, it probably had a young one somewhere, but not close to where it was. What I think was going on, it was it trying to lead the two men into an ambush because there were two other adults in the area. The, the three of them were traveling together. And uh, like I mentioned before, I asked uh, really? Bob Really You think
1: Bob? people
3: into an ambush oh yeah well i asked bob gimlin i said why did you guys i asked bob gimlin why you guys (laughs) didn't follow the the creature and he immediately said we didn't know where the other two were it scared us
1: yeah and And of course you know i was being facetious i I know
3: and then bob titmus of course went there 10 days later to cast more tracks and he followed the line of tracks and the creature actually when it went out of sight where it disappears on the film uh he said it found a he found a spot where it had hidden itself but was able to watch the men for quite some time uh, apparently it stayed there for a long time watching the two men so that's all pretty suspicious behavior if you ask me
2: well and sure. I was gonna to say too well, the memory the mammary glands on that female were quite well developed right. and uh, it indicated to me that she was probably a nursing mother
3: yeah, I, I suspect if she she probably had a young one, and it, it may have been with the other two individuals.
2: Yeah.
3: Wherever they were, and no one okay, ever and searched. Gotta... No one ever searched the area to find if there were tracks for the other two. But the other two couldn't have been too far away.
2: How many people have they ever noted that have disappeared up in that area?
3: Have disappeared. Oh, uh-huh. there's, there's a lot of people that disappeared there's actually a show and i want to say it's on netflix it's called murder mountain it's about humboldt county and mm. and they talk about just the sheer number of course they, they're blaming it on the the drug growers and things up there right. but but there's too much of it mm-hmm. you know and and when you watch the show Uh, what I gathered from it is, you know, the, the drug people, they interviewed these people, you know, whatever arrangement they had to these people, let them interview them. They don't, they don't, first of all, appear like they'd be murderers. A lot of these people wouldn't, maybe they are, but they, they don't appear to be. And they talked about hiring young women to do the work with the pot plants because men would typically, you know, take the product or try to steal money and things. So they weren't as trustworthy as the women were. So, um, the situation, it just doesn't seem like it's a place where there'd be, I mean, and there probably are a fair amount of people who get murdered up there, but I still think a lot of them might be attributed to the Sasquatches in the region because of the sheer numbers. And the Sheriff's Department, um, can, they said they simply can't handle the volume of missing people.
2: When I asked that, the one where, see uh, um, if I'm thinking of the light show that the journalist himself had he was undercover and was actually uh, presenting himself to be a uh, uh, a a a pot grower and was going oh, no, no. up there and actually open food.
3: No, oh, no, this person actually goes in and, and they they know they know this person's a a TV journalist and and they're making this film.
2: Well, I, I, this guy originally uh, had gone up there in like the 70s and somebody had actually come in. Saying that somebody had uh, a couple of the guys had disappeared and they actually he actually overheard them saying that uh, bigfoot had taken them well, and uh, i guess there was actually a grower up there that actually went by that name too but he didn't have anything to do with it so we I have a, because the cops actually followed up on it
3: i, I have a, a contact a friend who's who lives in that area is born and raised up there and he says that actually some of the pot growers have uh, because they're being harassed by the creatures, are actually going to the sheriff's department complaining about it,
1: <laughs> which
3: is kind of an odd <laughs> twist, isn't it? Could
2: you please come protect my grove?
3: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, stranger things have happened. When we talked to Lee, Tom, you remember what Lee said about the pot grower uh-huh. he knew, and they, and they had built this sturdy cabin. Uh-huh. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the story because I don't remember it in, in detail. but And I think he talked about it on the show, one of the shows we had him on, but this cabin was very sturdy the creatures actually had approached it numerous times and at one point one of them was right out the front door and there was like a little uh, door, door they could you know open and look outside just
1: a little hatch it was a little a hatch little yeah two by four hatch yeah.
3: so so the thing had its it was facing out away from the cabin had its back of its head towards the opening and, and he says the guy shot it and killed it with a three fifty seven right in the back of its head. Uh, and then all hell broke loose. So uh, they they vacated the property, I believe.
1: But it, it cracked me up. The guy didn't even blink. It just the second he sees it, he just grabs a three fifty seven and, and caps this yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Real quick, before we move... And two, two further on, um, just getting back to this this original question this gentleman had, he says, do Bigfoot usually just walk away or do they ever run? And I'm just going to throw out my opinion here. Will, what do you think? Bigfoot can do whatever they want. Maybe they want to walk away sometimes. Maybe they want to run sometimes.
3: What are we talking about in, what are in your terms thoughts? of encounters with people?
1: Yeah, this, is again, goes back to the whole Patty thing because it, it seemed like patty was just kind of nonchalantly walking away and so he's wondering well is this normal behavior do they can they just walk away or do they ever run or
3: um, i think it would all be depends on the circumstances yeah, there's a mixture I, i've read accounts where they you know they ran but they ran after being shot at um typically they're not afraid of the person it's for whatever other reasons um but usually they usually the walkway oftentimes they don't, you know, it's like it's a person that leaves. So you have kind of a mixed bag on that. There's no, uh, one size fits all answer for that.
1: Well, and you get that kid that you talked to up by the Columbia river who mm-hmm. had a bluff charge.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. Right.
1: And so in a sense, you know, the things charging, that's, that's one behavior two, gets a bored look on its face and then just walks off.
3: Yeah, I suppose it figured he was no threat and and wandered off. What do you think about that, Forrest?
2: Well, you know, um, Bigfoot is probably just like people are. People react in all sorts of different different ways, and so do all other primates. I mean, it just kind of depends on the moment. And what the situation is, uh, I mean, we've heard plenty of accounts of them just staying there and, you know, staring at people, and then we've heard about them getting down on the course and, and doing the mock charge thing, and, and then we've heard about them taking off and running, so, I mean, it's, it's a you know, just like you said, it's a mixed bag, and um, I think it probably depends on the individual and uh, the mindset of the, the beast so
3: to speak. Yeah, I've thought about this for many years, and what struck me a long, long time ago was, when you think about it, if you compare it to how people are, uh, it it could depend on, you know, if it has any any form of psychosis, um, if it's not feeling good that day, or if it's feeling very good, if it's eaten well or not, if it's sick. I mean, there's all kinds of variables that play into that.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, I, there was one instance down here in uh, East Texas where I'd heard about uh, uh, a female that uh, several people had actually seen her, and um, she, they said that she was always uh, walking around acting like uh, a crackhead, uh, you know, jerky uh, movements and twitching, and, and she was always jabbering to herself like she was talking to herself, and uh, she was an older female. And um, seem to be by herself out there. And you know, I think that they could probably go through, you know, primates, people don't understand that primates, all primates have very similar emotions to people. And, and a primate in an isolation, isolated situation will become just like a person that's isolated. And they will have very they will develop very odd behaviors and peculiar things that they do. And I think that a Bigfoot in that situation could do exactly the same thing. I mean, if she's lost her mate, she's lost her baby, she's she's out there by herself. And, I mean, it was a continual thing. People were always reporting this. she, and that was the way they described her. She acted like a crackhead. And uh, so, I mean, I think they can have different, uh, just like you said, psychosis is that, uh, that uh, the same as people do.
3: Yeah, exactly. Some kind of mental disorder would develop in a situation like that. all right tom
1: well yeah well, i was just going to say you know what that reminds us reminds us of is again lee had a female sasquatch in the area where he was living and how did he describe it he said it was um it acted kind of like a bag or yeah a bag lady it would just run around just kind of jabbering and uh like like uh you know an indig- indigent that is talking to themselves all the time and, and it just very erratic. It, it very me. similar. It's funny to hear you say
3: that. It made me think of kind of an inside joke we have there, Tom. At first, I thought you were going to say it reminded you of Lee with the psychosis, but. <laughs>
1: well, no.
3: <laughs> we won't go there. No. <laughs> well,
1: but but, but Brian, it did Brian
2: remind me of that. Creatures, they're social creatures, and they're used to. Uh, you know, it's like they've done studies uh, with. And unfortunately, they use macaques way too often in these studies and chimpanzees, mm-hmm. depriving them of their mothers and all this sort of stuff. And it's like uh, th- there's one institute out there that I won't name, but they continue to do these studies. And it's like you think that one, you know, one, uh, uh, you know, 10 year period would be enough. You don't have to keep repeating it over and over and over. But uh you'd have enough information that you would have garnered. You don't have to keep subjecting more of these poor primates to the same thing. But, you know, primates are social creatures. You take their society, their hierarchy, their, their, their uh, associates away from them, they're just like people. They're going to react just like uh, people in that kind of situation. They're, they're a lost soul. They really are.
3: And the Sasquatch is going to be no different.
2: I don't think so. Yeah, they'd be just exactly the same. Yeah.
1: Just that they have sometimes a slightly more negative disposition to their personality. Right. Well
3: that's true.
2: That might be true too. That's true. They they and, have a little and they're bigger so they can enforce it a little stronger. That's right. <laughs> they
3: can they're big enough to have whatever kind of attitude they want to have. <laughs>
1: right. Well, it, it makes me think of the uh, the drug growers who were calling the cops, and I'm thinking, how big and how strong do those handcuffs need to be?
3: You, you don't <laughs> want to know.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I want to see the cop that's going to put it on them. Yeah, I was just thinking that,
3: <laughs> right? too. Yeah, who's going to put that on them?
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. We know who'd be running the other way.
3: <laughs>
1: yep. Okay, Tom, let's move on. <laughs> All right, so quick question regarding the um, the coloration of the creatures. And I think in general, and what we've seen, what we've talked about in the past is, you know, and there's exceptions to every rule, but generally the, the youngsters, the juveniles and, and younger tend to be a much darker, like a black, black hair. They're black, typically, get, yeah. Yeah, and you get older, you get... <laughs> reddish hair reddish brown reddish brown right and then and you get maybe much older and it may even be gray um what are your thoughts will
3: well i've seen a gray one so but i don't know if it was well it probably was an older one. i don't know if age had anything to do with it because hunters i talked to had seen it you know 17 years before i did and it was the same color then so um it could be just you know I, I don't know i mean i don't know how that works for us to be better to uh you know t- discuss that part of it but uh typically you know ad- adults and for the majority of them i mean it's like 70 plus percent of sightings you know where they talk about coloration it's sort of a cinnamon brown color uh occasionally they're brown sometimes black uh, and occasionally gray or white but for the most part they're the cinnamon brown color
2: Well, okay. in macaques, uh, my favorite monkeys, um, their babies, uh, for instance, are always born a darker shade. Uh, in your long tails, the babies are uh, they're black when they're born, and then they progressively turn to that mousy uh, color of the long tails. And then the, in the uh, northern pigtails and your Japanese macaques, the babies are born uh, real uh, a lighter shade of the, the golden color that they will become as adults and you can even get into your fervent monkeys and even the other uh, varieties and they almost always the infants are a different color than the adults and then they slowly change sometimes they will actually be and lighter but uh, uh, most generally they're darker and then they lighten up now when you talk about gray gray <clears throat> people have to understand it's kind of like Gray is an action upon a base color. So the animal can be born one color and then they will gray out. That can be with age. And sometimes it's just, it's just in the genetics. Um, um, I have a son that's almost nearly white headed and he's only 38 years old. And it's, um, it's, sometimes it's just in the genetics.
3: Oh yeah. So, I, I wish Milo was with yeah. us because even when we were in high school, he was, had a couple of gray hairs then and he grayed out pretty early.
2: Yeah. My son had gray hair. Uh, uh, and on his, by the time he was six, he was getting, but I actually was born with a naturally white hair on the, either side of my head. And, uh, it's always been there. And, uh, and of course the older I've gotten, it, it's just kind of blended in with my gray, but it was very distinctive when I was younger. If I pull my hair back, you could see the white patches on either side of my head. Um, it just, I mean, uh, coloration of the hair uh, will vary. And you hear about uh, some Bigfoot having the cinnamon color like orangutans. I mean, people will say it was it, it was the color of an orangutan, you know. And then, your, of course, your chimpanzees, <clears throat> uh, the billy apes tend to be a gray color. And your uh, troglodytes and your bonobos are exclusively uh, black. And, and gorillas are always traditionally black, too. So, Colors vary. They're of a broad spectrum, and I'm sure it probably looks the same way with Bigfoot, too.
3: I'll tell you what. That cinnamon brown color would really blend in well in the Northwest forest. Uh, Tom, I know you've seen many stumps that are exactly that color.
1: We have. And we actually talked to a gentleman, Will, just a couple weeks ago who shot uh, and killed a stump bear.
3: That's right. <laughs> do you do you remember that? I do
1: <laughs> <laughs> it. I'm telling you, I looked at that stump and it looked exactly like a bear hiding behind the bushes with the ears poking up. He shot it and, it and killed he it. Shot it and <laughs> he shot it, and the bear didn't budge. Oh my! Yeah. Yeah, but I bet it's
2: very disconcerting to have that stump all of a sudden stand up and walk away, too, though.
1: (laughs) Right. And that would be, you know, think about, well, the forest here. I mean, you could walk along. You wouldn't even notice it with all the dead, mossy stumps. Oh, I I told
3: you, I I did that with a friend of mine, my buddy Jack, years ago. We were up in, um, in an adjacent area to Bluff Creek, and we'd been up there for a week. And driving on it, and didn't see anything. It was just, it it was really frustrating, you know, and and he was kind of in the doldrums, and I, I was trying to cheer him up. And up ahead of us, and it was kind of a tunnel like, you know, the way the trees were growing over the road we were on. So it was kind of gloomy, and and it looked, it, I I saw this what looked like a log, up ahead of us, you know, on the left side of the road, and I said, you know, you just never know when something's going to happen. I said, you know, we're going to get up here a little bit further. And that's that dark spot up there, that log, that's going to get up and run across the road. And I'll be damned if it didn't. It was a 400-pound black bear. <laughs> it was just laying on the side of the road, and it got up and ran as we approached.
1: Now, that is a stump bear.
3: And he told me, he says, damn it, quit saying things like that. It always happens when you say those things.
2: <laughs> oh, Lord.
3: <laughs> All right, let's move on, Tom. All right.
1: Enough of the stump bears.
3: Enough of the stump bears. Okay. (laughs) Uh,
1: All right, so this question is regarding natural disasters. Robert wants to know in the day-to-day life of Sasquatch, outside of some possible apocryphal antidotes, uh, regarding the Mount St. Helens disaster, I don't think I've ever heard this subject addressed. How would floods, wildfires, earthquakes affect them? Also, do you give any credence to the cover-up theory regarding the Mount St. Helens explosion. No, well, do you have
3: that's a, any thoughts on that? <laughs> that's a ridiculous theory, and I, I've mentioned this many times But before.
1: why? Why is it ridiculous? Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Here. Well,
3: first of all, uh, you know, the, the biologists in the area talked about how the deer and elk, weeks before the Mountain Blue, started evacuating the area. And I think a lot of the big animals probably did that. Um, and also, I was... Um, i was a non-commissioned officer stationed at fort lewis with the fifth air cavalry at the time a squad leader and uh, all of our pilots uh that unit was one of the units that had a, a big role in the work that was being done after the mountain erupted in fact i was in yakima the morning that it erupted and we were flying back and, and the ash cloud was heading our direction so we avoided being you know caught in the ash cloud but um, all the pilots in the unit knew what my quote unquote hobby was. And and they would have told me if anything happened. I mean, they just would have, uh, and there was nothing. So, and also the ash was so deep. How would you ever find anything? And I'll give you an example. Um, there was a gentleman named Harry Truman named after the president, uh, who they tried in vain to get to evacuate his home. And one of the Cobra pilots I knew, a, a CW-3, came to me one day and he had this little glass vial in his hand and he says, hey Bill, do you know what this is? And I looked at it and I said, what would you do? Did you go to the beach today or something? <laughs> I was messing with him. And he, he chuckled he says, no, this is, uh, we landed on top of where Harry Truman's house was and his house was buried under 100 feet of ash. So all these different things, you know, there was just no way anything like that would occur.
1: Alright, Well, so
3: I'm going you know, to ring gonna... Go ahead first
2: well, <laughs> I said I was going to say one of the reasons he didn't want to leave uh, I remember seeing an interview with him that he had like 40 something cats and um, a couple of dogs and I think there was a couple of horses and mules and he said that the only way he'd leave was if uh, he really didn't want to leave but he'd have to take all those animals that have to go with him and uh, um he just chose to stay and perish with them.
1: And they did. They did. Well, yeah, and those animals are a responsibility. So um so I'm just gonna I wanna push this a little bit further. Well, who who did the majority of the helicopter rescues? Was it the Army National Guard that we heard so much about, or was it it was actually, That's an open ended question. Well,
3: I, I don't know what I don't exactly remember what the I don't remember hearing at the time much about the National Guard. I know the regular army was involved because my unit was one of those units involved in that. And I knew quite a few of the pilots who were there.
1: So it was a lot of regular army. It was, army it, was, was it was a lot, of a lot of regular.
3: Yeah, it was a lot of regular okay. army. In fact I, I got first hand accounts of the people they found the the dead people and in, in the gruesome conditions they found him in up there so yeah they those were active duty guys
1: yeah yeah that was a thing that was uh you know and that makes sense with what was it three months two or three months of warning that this thing was going to go yeah and towards we, the end at the warning
3: we didn't really increase we didn't think much of it at fort lewis because it was just it was one of those things it was you know 120 miles south of us so um I, I remember the morning it happened um we got the order to move and i told the guys to load their stuff up in the helicopters and we were bugging out so we we were flying west and uh I had a headset on i was sitting between the pilots and and one of the guys says hey sarge you know what that is and i said, it was just it, I, it looked like it was raining it, look, it looked like a cloud bank west of the mountains and i i said yeah it's misery because i'm thinking you know we'd been in in the field for a couple of weeks everything was filthy and i was just c- trying to calculate how long it was going to take to get everything cleaned and turned in so i could go home and get a shower <laughs> and, and it just it multiplied that thinking about rain turning everything to mud on the gear so and he knew what I was talking about and he says, No, 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 he says, That that's the ash cloud from Saint Helens that blew just now or whatever, a few minutes earlier, and he said they're they're rerouting us north around Mount Rainier to avoid the ash cloud. And when you see the pictures of Yakima that morning it looked like um nighttime at noon. You know, we had we had yeah. we had missed that. We'd got out of there just before it hit that area
1: and what what distance do you estimate that you were when you took a look at that cloud, thought it was rain?
3: Oh geez, I don't know, a couple of miles maybe we weren't that okay fun. and when you're when you're in the air, that's not a great distance, really. No, no, it isn't
1: well, David
2: Johnston was the geologist that was up there, and his famous last statements was what was it Vancouver vancouver uh yep. this is it and um he he was five miles away up on a bluff and the pyroclastic flow caught him and um that was all he had time to get out and they said that i think it was in 93 or 94 that they found the um van that he had he was in Mm. up there they oh really yeah pieces and parts of it it wasn't intact but uh because that, I mean, those pyroclastic flows hit you, and they're going sometimes up what two and three hundred miles an hour. Well, and, so and they
1: said that was five hundred
3: uh, miles an hour, and not just that. Um, they um, they would vaporize. I mean, one of the one of the trucks that was found. There was a, a guy, and I can't remember which person it was. I just remember the one of the pilots telling me when they landed, they saw the truck from the air, and and they landed there and they didn't see any body when they come around the corner around the side of the truck apparently the guy had been outside the vehicle and um where the bed of the truck met his body the heat vaporized everything from the bed top of the bed of the truck up and this bottom part of his body was still leaning against the truck huh. so there was there was I, I heard quite a few gruesome stories you know like that one uh things they found up there
2: well, I I have been I lived in Anchorage and the year that they had a volcano erupt across the inlet and it actually had produced a pyroclastic flow. Nobody lived out there in that direction, but it came out partially into the inlet and people were sweating bullets when that happened.
3: Oh yeah. And,
2: um, and but I mean that ash cloud settled on Anchorage and we had I think they said if I remember correctly it was eight to eleven inches uh, of ash. I mean we were shoveling shoveling ash for uh weeks after that, that stuff's and terrible too it eats the paint off your car and,
3: yeah it eats the yeah, paint off your car and all along. that stuff yeah okay let's move on to the next question tom
1: okay we got three questions here this is from frank and i'll just throw them out there uh will Do you know of any incidents where Sasquatch has actually become enough of a problem or nuisance that the authorities had to act and recognize the reality of the creatures? Are there any stories of the Indians or early settlers having to deliberately pursue and kill some of these creatures due to problems?
3: Well, the first one about the authorities, I'll say no. Um, with the native folks and settlers yes there were there were a number in fact um again referring back to when Forrest forest i talked to fred yesterday and, and again folks that'll be saturday show episode uh, 181 uh, where i asked fred about a particular village and the creatures had gotten so bold that they were coming up in broad daylight challenging the men of the village to the point where uh, they felt it necessary to evacuate the women and children of the village, and sent them to two other villages some distance away.
2: Wow. Well it was the same, same story with Pot, uh, Portluck and uh, uh, and I always forget the name of the other village. But uh, Adam? Um, yeah, they were working. Mm-hmm. All these all these natives were working for the cannery there, and they'd had so many disappearances, hunters disappearing, and then they these things started coming up into the the villages themselves and harassing people stealing their dogs and and uh, their salmon and stuff and uh, they just uh, it, it was just easier for the people to pack up and uh they moved into uh, uh Port Grantham and uh Naniluk uh over there they just literally moved uh, the whole two villages over to these other two villages that were well down and more inland
1: Well, that begs the question. Well, we've talked about the creatures. Uh, They're emboldened if they feel they have numerical superiority. Yes. And I wonder if that doesn't play into these situations where they're like, you know what? There's a whole lot more of us and a lot more wilderness. You're not going to get us. We definitely have the upper hand here.
3: Yeah, it could be. I mean, again, it it sort of depends. It's a situation by situation thing.
1: Yeah. Okay, question number two. How significant is Sasquatch predation on humans? How many people go missing in the wilderness each year, would you guess, is Bigfoot related? And that's probably a tough question to answer because there yeah because you how do you guess
3: well yeah how do you say specifically okay this person was taken by a sasquatch these this person wasn't what's what's the right. distinguishing features
1: yeah um what would you expect such people when taken would never be found unlike with a bear or a mountain lion the thing, with, thing is mountain lion attacks are so extremely rare they do happen though but if there's animal predation there's always a mess i hate to say it but you know there's evidence like that and so you know it's different when people just vanish
3: it is absolutely well we got time for okay we got time for one more question and we're just about out of time folks so but we got time for all one right.
1: more. all right this is frank's last question he says what might make these creatures more likely to attack humans time of year, time of day, proximity to food, or just random opportunism. Um, Forrest, do you want to hit that one?
2: <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> well, opportuni- <laughs> it's, it'd be similar
3: to what other primates do.
2: Yeah. Um, a lot of it is just uh, being, uh, an opportune time, uh, opportunistic, um, and then uh, we do know that uh, there are situations where they actually have uh, uh, hunted people, and uh, I think both of you guys have been in that situation where you felt like uh, it was time to leave. And uh, <clears throat> um, and I think that we kind of discussed a little bit that uh, yesterday with Fred that you know there's that primal sense that we have, I think, deep down in our DNA that has remained with all of us. And its I think it's in all mammals, not just us, but all mammals. And, it's, and it caught our sixth sense that tells us that danger, danger, you know? And uh, some people have the good sense to listen to it. Others do not. Uh, I, I think that Bigfoot is just like chimpanzees. They're opportunistic hunters. If the uh, the time arrives and they see the the that they can they can easily take um, prey, then they'll do it. If and I think people going out by themselves are, are putting themselves in danger by doing that. I think they should always go in two or threes. Four would probably be the the uh, optimum number, I would think. You know, because if somebody falls and breaks a leg, at least you got another person to stay there with them and then the other two can escort each other out. So, um, you know, but I don't know, you, you've been in that situation for more than I've ever had.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. It, it is a matter of, uh, an opportunistic. And then, you know, again, we talked about their disposition, all the different variables. So, um, it's kind of like playing roulette. You really don't know what kind of a situation you're going to get into. They might leave you alone. Then again, they may not. Uh, and then what, it, it kind of like it, it kind of goes back to being i watch the thing about serial killers and how they sort of get to where they eventually are um and it's sort of a trial and error process and and then they build up um oh what's the word i'm thinking of they get confidence as they successfully do each thing and progress to where you know they become kind of an expert at what it is they're doing so i think the sasquatch is the same way they might be very timid at first but over time you know and experience they get more confident what they're doing so i think the really bad ones have gotten away with what they're doing for a long time Uh, whereas in many other situations they're just not quite there yet
2: well and i'm gonna jump in here for a second um speaking from a person that is probably one of the few people that can honestly say I had a run in with Ted Bundy yes I did and I lived to survive the story uh, and tell the story Um, it happened true story Um, they serial killers develop a plan over time that works for them and they, they use that over and over and over and it seems to fall into play every time that I would think that Bigfoot would be the same way. Well, this worked this this way worked this time. Let's try it again, see if it works again. And before long, they have literally developed themselves a plan and how to progress, and they are kind of like serial killers. They plot and connive. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's
2: scary. you're you're dealing with an intelligent primate. And I know some people don't like me saying that, but I, they're primates to me. And I may, somebody may come along one of these days and say, you know, Forrest, you're totally wrong. And I'll be the first one to say, okay, I accept it. But right now I'm going to say they're a primate. We're a primate. Chimpanzees are primates. And they are all intelligent creatures. And, uh, you know, you're dealing with something that in some respects in the woods is forced Smarter and more intelligent about their environment than we are.
3: Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, Tom, um, I think we're about at the end of our time limit, so we're going to wrap up. You guys have any final thoughts?
1: All right. Well, I, want, I just want to say we're ending on a very upbeat note. <laughs> and, <laughs> here's but, <the> killers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Absolutely. But here's what I want to say <clears throat> keep the questions coming. They're great. They're fantastic questions. We love them. And the other thing is, if you ask a question and you don't think we've answered it, um, shoot us an email again and just let us know hey, look, I think I asked this and I don't think I heard you guys respond. So, or didn't, you know, you didn't answer it. We love, that's fine. We love to hear from you guys. Always contact us with questions, questions at creekdevil.com
3: forrest any final thoughts
2: no i uh we had some really thought-provoking questions this time i enjoyed it
3: and folks like tom said you know keep the questions coming and the listeners really enjoy uh this particular part of the show with q a so um it's it's something that they say they don't get elsewhere so keep them coming folks and with that we'll end this episode and uh stay tuned thursday i think you're going to really enjoy the bigfoot history this week in bigfoot history near orchard washington early 1960s a man from orchard named lopez told roger patterson while driving home on a foggy night with his head out the window of his car he drove slowly around an obstruction on the road It turned out to be a jet black creature, eight to nine feet tall, with a flat face and no neck. It just looked at him as he went by.
0: Welcome. This encounter is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by Jim Sower. The title of this encounter is This Nohomish County Goliath, Darrington, Washington, in the Cascade Range, 1989. On July 15th of 1989, I had intended to meet my parents near the town of Darrington, Washington, for a simple day hike and some later blueberry picking. We were to meet at the corner monument of Section 27, Township 32 North, Range 9 East, which lies on the roadway to Squire Creek Trailhead, a remote location that isn't the normal haunt of the weekend backpacker. I was there because of my necessity for completion of mining assessment work on two claims, which I held there for several years. On this particular day, I arrived at about 10 a.m. with my son Rolf and his friend David, It was a typical early summer day in the mountains, light fog in the canyons, and heavy shadows in the tree line. Warm and enjoyable, perfect weather for a brisk hike. This would occur later when my father, mother, and niece arrived at about 11.30. We took a light lunch break, and three of us continued up the hill while the two boys and my mother remained at the cars. In about ten minutes, we had made the first hillside above the road. It brought us about eighty feet up to a large plateau that was somewhat open but not heavily traveled, as I had only found this location a short time before, long enough to have ribboned the trail and investigated the tunnels for dangers. I had also explored the remains of an old mining cabin, collected samples, and posted the site in error. "'My job was to remove the inaccuracies "'and bring the claim into compliance. "'This required me to part company at this plateau "'and venture off the trail about two hundred feet. "'I had told my father and niece to wait at the site, "'and I would return shortly. Ten minutes later I returned, and they were gone. "'I called out and received no reply to my hails. "'Angered that they had gone ahead, "'I returned to the bush and took a few samples.' About fifteen minutes later, I returned to the trail and questioned where they had gone. Both were emphatic that they had not ventured far from the spot, but my father seemed preoccupied by voices that he claimed he had heard. Yeah, a garbled, mumbling speech that resembled the sounds of dwarves arguing over a card hand. I passed it off to the carry of the boy's voices from below the bank, but he insisted otherwise. With that, we continued on our way and investigated the tunnels without incident. After about an hour hike to the upper tunnels, my father and niece decided to return to the vehicles. Dad would have liked to continue the hike, but was worried about the safety of my niece, Tina, so he accompanied her back to the cars. I said my goodbyes and continued on my way, onto a trail that I had been on only the week before. But... As I looked around, it was difficult to determine exactly what I was seeing. The trail looked like it had been obliterated in some cataclysmic fashion. Huge rocks were out of place, trees broken over, and hillside ripped loose. I couldn't even discern the ribbons I had placed to mark my previous trip. It was as though the hand of God had slapped the hillside and jarred it beyond recognition. I couldn't even tell if I would be able to regain the trail without rope and pitons to secure my travel. It was devastation. So much so that I abandoned the monument I was carrying so I could use both hands to pull myself up to the trail. I was standing in an area more familiar but equally as unusual. Here I could see the ribbons I had placed, but they were lying on trees that were now on the ground. Large conifers were snapped off three and four feet above the ground like a child breaks stalks of grass. The broken ends and ground covered with an unusual green slime. It was like nothing I had seen before in all my many travels into the wild. It looked like this slime had been ejected from a toothpaste tube, but the interior of the jelly contained strands of very minute vegetable matter. This vegetable matter was impressed in the interior like it came out of five separate orifices, and it held its position in the mass of gelatin. Overall consistency was like thick tapioca pudding, and it gave the simulation of phosphorescence in the dim light of the trail. As you might imagine from my discussion, I spent some time trying to decipher the meaning of all of what I was seeing at the sight, It reminded me of the Tunguska blast in Russia. Or the aftermath of Mount St. Helen's, many of the trees were laying up the hill. A short while later, I arrived at the site where I had intended to place the monument. I returned for this and made placement fast, as I still had to take samples and return to the vehicles before it got too dark to pick berries. When I completed this task, I turned to take a few samples and heard an unusual echo from the surrounding hill an extended echo that wasn't mine coming from the hill above me. Now let me tell you, in the time that I have been mining, I have had several guns pointed in my face. I had no desire to be shot by some wayward hayseed in the hills, so I dropped my supplies and traveled out onto a rock slide that went all the way up the hill, a vantage point from which I would surely see the maker of the sound. Well... Such was not the case, so I cupped my hands to my face and called to the maker of the sound. Moments later, the hillside exploded in a blaze of fury. Falling through the trees, I could make out a large black shape, and my first impression was that my call had dislodged a large nest or tree limb from above. But as it continued to crash in Rambo fashion, I knew I was seeing a live creature, big and black. It had to be a bear, a cub perhaps, and I began to look for the mother. As it rolled, though, I could see arms gripping for a handhold, and a creature far bigger than a cub. This had to be a grizzly, judging from its size, and it was rolling right toward me. Not a good place to be with an injured bear. I saw every form of mauling death in those first few moments, and prepared for a quick and painful death at the claws of this thing, and then it was over. The behemoth laid on the trail dead, or unconscious, I couldn't tell. Better yet, I couldn't make out head or tail on what I was seeing. They just looked like a mass of hair. I surveyed my situation in a few moments and decided to walk toward the thing and see if I could get around it and escape. Just then, it began to stir, and I prepared to die. I saw first one hand and then another extending from the sides of this thing. Expecting a four-footed stance, you can imagine my surprise when it stood straight up like a man, and its buttocks were about my eye level. I pulled my twenty-two caliber pistol and tried to fire a round up in the air, but I was so rattled that I forgot the safety and it wouldn't fire. By now I was so engrossed in the magnificent size of this beast I just stood there and took it all in, as I marveled at its muscle bundles and definition. The hair was jet black and about three inches long over most of the arms and legs, swishing like a spaniel dog as I walked. His face was a ruddy brown with deep-set wrinkles under the eye sockets and eyes dark as coal. Its nose was short and black, with a beard and mustache that grew from the bridge of its nose. Lower, the beard resembled some aspects of the buffalo. I thought it quite odd, because I could see various forms of mythological beasts in my own visual description to myself. Later, I fired a shot over its right shoulder. It turned and looked at me, and then just walked away down the trail like I didn't matter. A living Goliath! As I stood there, I was unsure of what to do. The gun was obviously little protection, but I did have explosives down the trail in my rock bag. My thought was to get to them, and I could easily scare this thing away and make my break for it. As I walked down the trail, though, I spotted something crouched near my supplies. It was the creature, and it was doing something. Digging? Well— thinking that this was possibly a method of hiding killed prey, i decided to get a closer look and make sure it wasn't one of my party. but as i got closer, it picked up a rock the size of a basketball and beat it on the ground 3 times. i decided this was bad and began to back up. now it seemed like i became the hunted and it turned and ran my direction. i turned and ran for all i was worth toward the rock slide and down the hill. The creature crested the hill above me and began longitudinal traverse of the hillside, ripping out everything that stood in its way. It looked like the scenes of a Tasmanian devil cartoon. This thing destroyed whole trees as it mowed through them, pushing them aside like I would small twigs. Rocks, branches, and all forms of debris came my direction as if they were being hit with some beam of anti-gravitational force. It was so surreal that it was shocking— and I stopped several times when I could run no further. Surprisingly, when I stopped, it stopped. And when I ran, it ran. During the pauses, it would make that banging sound again just long enough to enlist a response from me. I ran to 300 feet of the road before I decided to give up, and then it turned and went back into the forest. As I broke out onto the road, they tell me that I emptied my clip of my gun. Of that I have no memory. When I returned home, I was too distraught to talk to my wife or acknowledge my friend, Kevin, who was visiting. I just went into the shower and scrubbed, until I began to bleed. I then collapsed in the tub and began to sob, shaking with the adrenaline still coursing through my veins. THAT NIGHT I RECOUNTED THE STORY OF WHAT I HAD SEEN, A CURSE THAT LED TO REPEATED BIZARRE NIGHTMARES AND SLEEP DEPRIVATION. UNUSUAL, TERRIFYING ASPECTS FOR WHICH I HAVE NO EXPLANATION. ON THAT NOTE, I WILL LEAVE YOU TO DIGEST MY STORY. I CONSIDERED MYSELF TO BE A VERY RATIONAL MAN. I HAVE SEEN BEARS IN THE WILD, AND HUNTED THE SAME. WHAT I SAW WASN'T A BEAR. It seemed to be a living creature that was capable of being hurt, albeit to higher levels of pain than a man could survive. It also appeared to revisit this site on a yearly routine. As you become more involved with this subject, you will notice that science finds what it wants. It affords the research that it wants, and those who seem most devoted to the topic are not. Those who do believe, those who have had the experience, are few. They make the periodic visits to the media if time allows, and they tell their stories even though they don't get paid for these appearances. All we want are the answers that will again let us live a normal life, a life in which the world is a far bigger place, and we feel humbled by the magnificence of God. Sincerely, S.F. This ends the reading of this encounter. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at William Jevning at Yahoo.com. That's William, J E V N I N G, at Yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open now.